You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. There's never been a time when I felt that there weren't artists to be continually inspired by or to be discovered. And people often say to me, aren't you going to run out of people someday when you just are showing artists connected with Maine? And it just hasn't happened and it doesn't seem to happen. So there's always somebody to discover and more art to see. So I'm a big advocate for art teachers in the state of Maine being rehired if they've been let go and hiring more because we need more. The irony is business wants creative workforce, but without teachers, art specialists modeling creativity, innovation, and imagination, where will our children see that? The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. Show number 107, Artists and Education, airing for the first time on Sunday, September 29th, 2013. Art belongs to all of us. How do we ensure that the making and enjoyment of art is accessible to Mainers? Suzette McAvoy, Director of the Center for Maine Contemporary Art, and Roger Dell, Director of Education at the Farnsworth Museum, answer this question today. Art belongs everywhere. Art, to the observant eye, is everywhere anyway. When I was in second grade, one of my classmates could draw Snoopy, Charlie Brown, and the rest of the Peanuts gang with age-defying accuracy. Try as we might, the rest of us in Miss Bissonette's Roscoe class could not hope to mimic the technical prowess our friend Chris had. Chris became known as the artist. I was never known as the artist. I was the reader, the singer, the playwright, I became, much later in my academic career, the scientist. My formal art education ended in eighth grade. I could not draw, at least not well, so art became off-limits. My talents, I concluded, were not of the visual persuasion. Fast forward a few years. Taking a break from my doctoring, writing, and parenting, I pick up a camera and set out into the world to see what I can see. The camera is soon paired with an iPhone. Soon, I am taking pictures and sharing them. People seem to like them. I'm told I may have talent in this area. How can that be, I wonder? I am no artist. I have no formal training in this field. Yet, because art can be found all around us, I have access to all that artists might also observe. And, like artists, I have a set of eyes of my very own. Individuals like Suzette McAvoy of the Center for Maine Contemporary Art in Rockport and Roger Dell of the Farnsworth Art Museum remind us that we all have the ability to see. Whether we have a degree in fine arts or we are mere dabblers, we are all capable of observing and savoring the art all around us. Art belongs everywhere, in the classroom, in the museum, in the home, and in the greater world. We need only open our eyes, literally or figuratively, to understand that this is so. We hope that you enjoy thinking about your own inner artist. 
as you listen to our interviews today. Thank you for joining us. I first learned about the Center for Maine Contemporary Art several years ago and was impressed yet again by the scope of art that we have here in Maine. All sorts of different art, but this specifically more visual. And last summer, I was able to go in there and experience a very unique um, lights, sounds, a very interesting way of looking at art. So today, I'm privileged to have with me Suzette McAvoy, who is actually the director and curator of the CMCA and has been since September of 2010. Suzette, it's great to have you here. Why does Maine need contemporary art? Uh, Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, Maine has had a relationship with visual artists since the mid-19th century, since Thomas Cole first came to Mount Desert, and then a whole wave of landscape painters have followed him in his footsteps. And as they say, all art is contemporary once. Um, you know, so our mission at CMCA is advancing contemporary art in Maine. It's really to be a catalyst for this legacy of Maine's role in American art, really sort of pushing the ball forward, always sort of stretching what people's idea of art is and can be. You were recognized in the July issue of Maine Magazine as one of the 50 Mainers who admire, that we are supposed to admire and inspire. Of course, I am, I always have um, inspired, I've been inspired by artists and people who work in the art world. It's hard for me to believe that the CMCA has actually been around for 61 years. Isn't that incredible? It's, it's, it, it surprises me as well. When I think about 1952 and what the state of Maine was at that time, and, you know, really there weren't too many art institutions other than the Portland Museum, and the Farnsworth was only four years old at that point. They started in 1948, and um, they're our closest neighbor of arts institutions. Um, and then, of course, there were the college and university museums, but they certainly weren't what they are today and weren't so open to the public. So the fact that there was this group of contemporary artists who came together to found an institution that was really dedicated to contemporary art at that point in time when you know, contemporary art in America was actually a challenging area to be in. Um, you had abstract expressionism and, you know, sort of European modernism, but this was pretty much right after World War II, so it was surprising. And um, the fact that we have remained a constant in the um, art community in Maine since 1952 is really uh, extraordinary, and it sort of speaks to, I think, the really vibrant and strong role that artists continue to play in the Maine community. As I mentioned in the introduction, last summer I was at the CMCA, which is in Rockport currently, um, and there was a very interesting exhibit um, there was a textiles, I believe, a fiber arts exhibit at around the same time, but there was an interesting exhibit on the top floor of the museum, and there were lights and sounds, and they were using electronics, and it was, I can't remember exactly what it was, sounds of the forest. Um, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, it was a, it was a sound installation by uh, Nate Aldrich and Zach Poff. Uh, Nate is a uh, in, professor up at the University of Maine at Orono. And one of the things that we do at CMCA is really sort of stretch the boundaries of what art is and the mediums that it can be um, embraced. Um, And so we always are looking for work that 
suggests a new way of thinking about the world, of experiencing it. Um, so sound art, performance, um, video work, um, even you know new ways of, of working with photography and sculpture and painting, you know all of those things that that might um, ask people to think about and see the world in new ways, ways they haven't thought about it before. It's really sort of engaging people in in that uh, new way of thinking. How do people respond? What do they say when you put out there um, this idea that sound could possibly be art or that performance, um, video, a video of a performance, that is also a visual art? Well, some people are initially resistant, um, but then I think that one of our jobs as an arts institution that's open to the public is to really make it an inviting opportunity for people to maybe get familiar with something that might be off-putting to them at first. And that's so wonderful about CMCA is I think that we can offer that to the public. We have a a very welcoming sort of attitude there. It doesn't seem off-putting. And I think that is sort of reflective of Maine in general. People come to CMCA and they see work that uh, wouldn't be out of place in New York City or in more urban area. Um, And they, I think find it more approachable somehow here. They they seem because also the artists are really part of the community here and they're not they don't seem to be sort of separate from everyday life. They're really part of our life here. And um, I think that that somehow makes it more approachable to some people. And then I often try to go out and give gallery talks. We have uh, our receptionists are very um, willing to engage people in conversation. And to me, that's really what art is. It's really a conversation. It's a way of, of um, communicating between people. Um, it's really visual language, um, but it's a, a, a way to um, express things that aren't necessarily um, uh, expressible in words. I presume that you could have gone anywhere. You could have gone to New York or Boston or another big city that had, or even Portland, to be a curator um, and to be a director of a museum. Why would you choose a smaller museum up the coast of Maine? Well, I first came to Maine in the fall of 1988 to take the job as curator at the Farnsworth Museum. And the Farnsworth at that time was a very different institution. It was much smaller. We hadn't yet broken out onto Main Street, or the Wyeth Center wasn't part of it. Um, And I stayed there off and on. Um, I was there full time through 1995, and then took five years off when my daughter was born. Um, Came back in 2000 and stayed in 2006. So through that whole time, I saw the institution really grow. And I also saw what it could do as a positive impact on the community, because the Farnsworth um, really was part of that whole transformation of Rockland and consequently the Midcoast. So uh, that was a really, I think, a positive experience. And the fact that there are so many extraordinary artists that are in this Midcoast area, you had Lois Dodd and Alex Katz and Kenneth Noland, I mean, really, Robert Indiana, really internationally known artists that I was able to do exhibitions with and to interact with on a very personal level that I felt that in a big city, I probably wouldn't have had that kind of access. Here, people come to Maine, and they're 
I think, more relaxed and more open to being approached. And um, there's less uh, sort of political maneuvering that has to be done to get to um, those the artists at that level. Um, so it's it's been really extraordinary to be able to work with artists at the really their peak of their career, but also to be discovering young artists that are coming up and coming, um, like Danica Phelps, an area an artist that's from, originally from Rockport, who now shows internationally, or Ethan Hayes Shoot, another young artist from Freeport that we showed uh, two years ago, who now lives in Berlin and is showing. Uh, last at the Marrakesh Biennial, or uh, Steve Mumford, who has a studio in uh, Tenants Harbor, Maine, who just you know did a series in Iraq and Afghanistan, a series of work uh, that we showed a couple of years ago. So there's just there's never been a time when I felt that there weren't artists to be continually inspired by or to be discovered, and. Um, People often say to me, aren't you going to run out of people someday when you just are showing artists connected with Maine? And it just hasn't happened, and it doesn't seem to happen. Every time I go to somebody's studio, I always ask them, is there somebody I should be looking at? And they always tell me somebody, and I go and check that out. And you know, So there's always somebody to discover and more art to see. I have noticed, having been to the CMCA art auction, which happens every year, in July? Uh, the end of July. At yeah. the end of July. Mm-hmm. I have noticed that there seems to be um, not exactly an equal number, but certainly a representation of younger artists. There are the more established artists. I know you've had Lyndon Frederick and um, others of his caliber. But then you also have some of the younger artists who are just m- more newly in their careers. Um, is this another way of making art more accessible? It is. And um, one of the things that See, that sort of sets CMCA's auction apart is that it is an invitational. We actually invite 100 artists every year, um, and we try to find a balance between established artists and up-and-coming artists, and that is really to introduce their work to a buying audience. I mean, one of the things that we really want to promote is this idea of collecting art, of living with art. Um, I'm a big proponent of what I call the slow art movement. You know, there's this big thing now with slow food, but one of the things that I think is uh, really challenging for arts institutions these days is to get the viewer to slow down enough to really look at art, to really engage with it. We're so used to getting images quickly these days and to making snap judgments and reading things quickly online and on the screen that that physical engagement with a unique work of art really requires people to um, look over a sustained amount of time and to slow down and to think about things and to engage with it. And so living with art allows that kind of sustained looking and that kind of engagement. And so it's something that um, I really try to encourage people to do, um, is to acquire original works of art so that they can have that experience on a daily um, part of their life. You also have an interesting program at the CMCA called the Art Lab Program, mm-hmm. and this is, again, yet another way of bringing art to um, individuals, and but to individuals who are younger. It, it is. Um, one of the first things that I did when I uh, came to CMCA in the fall of 2010 was to really get the 
was to look around and see what what are we missing here? What are we lacking? And I thought one of the things was there's really no place at CMCA right now where a, a young family could come and really feel comfortable with their kids. And I thought so we took one of the uh, galleries and turned it into a classroom, a, a studio, a hands-on studio that we call Art Lab. And it's really that idea of experimenting and experimentation with materials. That's why we like the kind of lab idea that this isn't about instruction where you are, where it's uh, sort of a process that's outlined uh, with a known end product. It's about experimenting. And that's what art is really about, is that sort of open-ended, creative process. Um, so Art Lab was established with this idea that there would be a place that people visiting could just drop in, and that there would be materials out there, and that they could engage with what was there. And then shortly after that, we started what we call Art Lab for All Ages. And it came from a very simple idea that we would just, uh, on the first Saturday of every month, we would have it free of charge, drop in without registration, so you didn't have to think about it in advance. It didn't. It wasn't going to be parent-child like a lot of models. It was literally for all ages, so that the project that we were doing that day um, was designed to be something that adults as well as kids would want to engage in. And it was a success from the beginning. We really did get all ages to turn up, and they continued to come. I mean, anywhere from our neighbors across the street um, who are in their 80s, um, who are regular visitors to Art Lab, um, to two-year-olds on, on their parents' laps. Um, and we have grandparents and neighbors and friends and teenagers and so just this idea of creating community through creating art together has been a really positive outcome of the whole Art Lab um, program that we have. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. It is said a picture is worth a thousand words. If that is true, then what is the picture that describes your finances? Is it you in a deep hole? Is it you wildly riding a money roller coaster? Is it you chained to your job? Is it you walled off from your money? We know that picture is not the same as your vision. Your vision might be built on the idea that money should bring joy into the world. Or your vision might be that money should be used to enlighten and bring levity into existence. Or your vision might be that money should help break the chains of bondage that hold you back and hold you down so that you can pursue another better life. On the best of days, you dream about what life could be. The first step is to take a snapshot and use it to draw up blueprints for how you want it all to come together. Let us help you keep the vision in front of you and actually animate it. Like Shepherd Financial on Facebook, it is here we post our vision and images and share steps to encourage you to evolve with your money. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time 
when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Give me examples of some of the projects that you have people of all ages doing. Well, um, one of the most popular ones is our mystery bag um, projects where everyone is given a brown paper bag with a number of objects in it. Um, it's usually, you know, a found piece of wood, <clears throat> some just uh, little things that, um, you know, are collected around the home, and then they make um, sculptures out of them. Um, we also do uh, monoprinting. Um, there's a, a holiday card making project um, that everyone really enjoys. Um, there's a number of, um, oh, one of the things that people really enjoyed was um, there were these exquisite corpse cubes, um, which are actually three blocks that are painted with a head, a torso, or legs on each different side, so that when you put them in different combinations, you have a different um, uh, figure that um, is is composed out of the out of the three parts. Um, so there's just a, a lot of different um, mediums that we use. Um, we try to do 3D and two-dimensional projects, and they're all conceived by Marcy Bronstein, who's our art lab instructor, and she's just great about continually coming up with ideas that um, people seem to really enjoy. And uh, as I mentioned, we the whole premise is to just put the materials there and give people um, uh, a model, a finished product, and then just let them create in their own way and approach the materials in their own in their own fashion. The Center for Me and Contemporary Art is having it's outgrowing its space, I should say. And you're looking towards the future, and there are big plans in place. I know that a lot of things have to happen between now and possibly what happens in the future. Um, but I think you're in a process of maybe trying to raise some money? Yep. We are. Um, we're about to launch a $4 million capital campaign um, to acquire a building in downtown Rockland and to do renovations and to move in, we hope, by um, 2015. Um, it's really after a year-long study of looking at where we are um, and where we think we need to be in order to really fulfill our mission of advancing contemporary art in Maine. And the building that we're looking to buy is at 21 Winter Street in Rockland, and it's right across the street from the Farnsworth Museum and adjacent to the Strand Theater. So it really brings us into the heart of downtown Rockland. And, you know, a lot of the art uh, energy in the Midcoast has really moved definitively, I think, to Rockland. Um, and there's a really vibrant downtown community there that we could be part of and there's just going to be I think a synergy there between the Farnsworth and the Strand and CMCA and we're sort of the three you know the third leg of the stool there of addressing performing art you know more historical classic art the, the established museum and then 
emerging art and sort of the next wave of sort of, con of feeding into that next generation. So we're excited, they're excited, and um, I think it's going to be a really uh, a terrific next phase to our history. How can people find out about, uh, or maybe possibly donate towards your campaign? How can people find out about the CMCA? Um, well, on our website, cmcanow.org, so it's C-M-C-A-N-O-W, um, right on our homepage is our vision statement. So people can go to that to see what our um, plans are and where we are hoping to be heading. Um, and there's also a donate button there, so you can always do that. We're always uh, looking for people to, um, encouraging them to be members and to, and to donate. Um, so we have both our annual operating campaign and then now this capital campaign that we're going to be um, really um, going after over the next year. And people can also find out more information about Art Lab and either how to donate or how to be involved? Absolutely. Um, there's a link there for Art Lab, and you'll see that we have Art Lab for Kids, Art Lab for Adults, and Art Lab for All Ages. Um, there's also information about our upcoming exhibitions. And we also have a Facebook page, um, Center for Maine Contemporary Art, um, that we post a lot of photos and a lot of information about all of the programs that we do. I've been speaking with Suzette McAvoy, who is uh, the director and curator at the Center for Maine Contemporary Art, and also one of our 50 Mainers to admire and inspire from the July 2013 issue of Maine Magazine. Suzette, it's really been a great pleasure to speak with you about art and um, making art accessible for all, so thank you for coming in. It's been my pleasure, thank you. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. If I were an artist, I'm not sure what my medium would be because I'm attracted to and moved by so much art, it's hard to choose. Of course, one minor drawback that I learned at a very young age is that I don't have a lot of artistic ability. That's not to say that I have no creativity, it's just that fine art is not my forte. But as I consider the fact that art is an expression of creativity, I believe that talent and creativity can be applied to so many situations to solve a myriad of problems. Finding new solutions or presenting creative concepts that are unexpected but open new paths to success are paramount to the successful management of business finances. And like art, not everyone has the talent or passion for it which is why I enjoy doing what I do. We are passionate about helping our clients by using our talents with numbers in business management so they can use theirs to keep their businesses running smoothly. And we'd welcome the chance to help you. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, 
Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport, or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. Anyone who has spent time on the mid-coast and has an aesthetic sense has probably spent time at the Farnsworth Art Museum up in Rockland. And today we have with us Roger Dell, who is the Director of Education at the Farnsworth Art Museum. And it's quite a privilege um, to have you with us. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Roger, I know that one of the things that um, we t- we've talked about a lot on the show is education and how do we bring art to people and people to art and how do we make it a more integral part of their lives. And I think this is something that you've spent a fair amount of time working on yourself. Absolutely. Um, I think when we separate art out and we think about it in privileged places like museums and galleries, we're missing something that goes back thousands of years where art was totally integrated into everybody's life. Any culture you look at, ancient Greece, ancient Egyptian, the medieval cultures, and then certainly around the world, Africa, Oceania, Native American, many places didn't have the word art at all. They had objects that were made primarily for religious and utilitarian reasons that were beautiful and were artfully done. But the object itself didn't become venerated like we did in the West. That really began with the Renaissance and through modernism. So I'm actually calling for going back medieval to a certain extent and looking at art as an integral part, an important part, not a frill, not an extra, but deeply embedded in the way we perceive the rest of the world. Because you can think about art in and of itself, but it also helps us become visually literate for the whole world that we live in. So when we leave the gallery or the art museum, what do we take out as we look at our environment? And I think if we were more visually literate, more critical, We wouldn't allow ugly buildings to be built and cities to fall into decay. We would take care of them because we wanted them to be beautiful, just like the objects in the museum. So I have a deep and abiding interest in bringing art into everyday life. That's an interesting comment because um, as a doctor, I've worked in many medical facilities and have seen the difference between ones that are very much designed with the patient and the aesthetic in in mind um, versus ones that really were kind of thrown together. And there seems to be a significant, and we know there's studies that have to do with healing and beauty. Um, it also speaks to just a certain level of care that we would want our patients to have that beauty. But you're suggesting that we kind of broaden this and just put it out there in general for the population at large? I think it's not so much putting it out there for them. It's helping them discover that they love beauty too, and they can be artists, or they can be audiences of art. They can go to art museums. And when I say the arts now, I'm thinking of dance, music, theater, literature, and the visual arts. And so everybody has that capacity to appreciate it and also to make art too. Uh, We have a lot of classes at the Farnsworth for adults, art-making classes using their hands, painting, sculpture, life drawing. We're starting a new class in a couple of weeks, how to make films and videos for adults, for older people. 
we do this with younger people, but why not older people? And one of the things that always moves me when I have an older person say, I never did draw, I couldn't draw, I can't draw a perfect circle, I can't draw a straight line. Well, nobody can without a ruler or a protractor. So somebody told these people, and they bought it, that they didn't have talent in either singing or drawing. And so for 20 years, 40 years, most of their life they didn't try. And now as adults they're taking classes, which is great and wonderful, and we want more of that. But it's just sad to me that for all of those years they didn't sing, they didn't dance, they didn't try these things because typically some adult, when they were young, told them, you know, try something else, you're not good at this, or you don't have talent, you're not artistic. Every kid is artistic if given access to resources, some adult education, and an atmosphere that lets them discover their own creativity. You're not from Maine originally. I'm not. <laughs> you have been many places, but you were born in Manhattan. Yes. And you were at the Honolulu Academy of Arts. Um, you were at the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art, Fitchburg Art Museum. There must have been some formative things that occurred in your early life that caused you to be one of these children who actually believed that you could do art or you could become visually literate. Mm -hmm. My parents took me to the great museums in New York as a little boy because I was fascinated with not so much the art museums as it turns out, though that became my life track, but with the American Museum of Natural History because they had the skull of a Tyrannosaurus rex, which they still have, which I just saw two weeks ago, seated on the floor in an old-fashioned museum case, glass with a wooden trim. And I was like four years old, and I crawled up to it, and its teeth are nine inches long. That was awesome, awesome. So I was awestruck by objects and by things that were magnificent and also things that were beautiful. And I also, I guess, drew a bird once that everybody thought was fabulous, and I immediately became the artist of our family. And that support, whether that bird was good or bad, I haven't a clue, it doesn't exist anymore, but that support from my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. And I'm saying with kids today, if we can put them in a position to begin to discover their own creativity, we will be amazed about what they do. We can't even predict what kids do when given video cameras, digital cameras, camcorders, paints, clay, stone, because we've never seen it before, and they've never had the chance before. So I'm a big advocate for our teachers in the state of Maine, our teachers in every state in America, being rehired if they've been let go, and hiring more because we need more. The irony is, Business wants creative workforce, but without teachers, art specialists, modeling, creativity, innovation, and imagination, where will our children see that? It's an interesting question because we've become very focused, especially with the economy being shaky in the last few years, we've become very focused on sort of value for money. And it's easy to measure things like if you have a big college football team, they bring in revenue for the university. Sometimes it's harder to see the value of an arts education. But there are probably some, some things that you could offer um, that would counter those arguments about the value of art. 
Right, and there are all kinds of studies that show um, the arts in a creative economy being absolutely important. I mean, just taking Rockland, for example, uh, there are about 25 art galleries in a town of 7,600 people, in large measure because in 1948, the Farnsworth opened its doors and was kind of a magnet for culture. Now we have a very active music scene up there. We have all kinds of wonderful uh, performance going on. And then, most importantly, in many ways, is the great restaurants that we have in Rockland. But this all came about through a kind of renaissance that began, and I guess I am tooting our horn right now, with the Farnsworth opening and having a 60-year run of supporting uh, culture in that area which led to jobs and people opening restaurants and hotels and B&Bs. So there is that economic part, what I call the utilitarian or functional part or instrumental part of art, but then there's also art for the soul and soul making that's so important. And if people don't have that anymore, I really worry. One of the things that I'm concerned about is the lack of arts and humanities education, <clears throat> not only in elementary, middle, and high school, but in our colleges. When professors of the humanities are retiring now, they're not being replaced. Courses are being cut from the syllabus. And so there's less and less courses in the humanities. And when I say the humanities, that does include art history, aesthetics, philosophy, anthropology, history, and a number of other literature, of course. And so if that isn't being taught in the elementary, middle, and high school, and in college, where will people be exposed to arts and humanities? We'll return to our program in a moment. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. When one enters a nature preserve or a secluded wooded area, we often think that we are the observer. Have you ever thought that upon entering such a space that we are in fact the observed? A thousand eyes are looking upon us. We can choose to see the natural world through hard eyes or soft eyes. Hard eyes make us separate from nature and also from other people. Soft eyes connect us to nature and to people around us. We welcome and observe the world around us with a sense of awe. Through this vision, it is as if we are seeing the world around us for the very first time. It is a fresh and new look. I think that in working with land and landscape, one of the things I really try to do is have a great deep reverence and respect for the natural world. And I try to bring that journey to my clients as we work together in designing and creating their landscape. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog, of orthopedic specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At orthopedic specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability, and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781 9077. We at the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour know that our listeners understand the importance of 
the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Travis Boyer of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. At Black Bear Medical, we want to help people who want to stay in their homes but can't access it due to a mobility deficit. Our home accessibility department has some great solutions that allow people to get everywhere in their home. We have ramps and wheelchair elevators for negotiating entrance stairs and stairway lifts that will help people access upstairs rooms when climbing the stairs becomes unsafe. Our product experts will come to your house, offer advice, and a free home accessibility quote. We can even accommodate temporary needs with our rental program. We even take it a step further with products that can help people transport their wheelchairs and scooters in or on their vehicles. Stay safe in your home and go where you want to go with Black Bear Medical and our home accessibility geeks. Visit our locations in Portland and Bangor or visit blackbearmedical.com for more. You were the curator of gallery education at the Honolulu Academy of Arts. And that is maybe as far away from Maine as one can get, except maybe Alaska. I'm not really sure of the geography, but probably as far away. Um, how did you end up here? What, is, what are some of the differences that you see and the similarities that you see between Honolulu and Maine? Uh, when I was being interviewed at the Farnsworth for my present position, I, I told my wife, who was back in Massachusetts, that when you come up here, you're going to think, it looks like home, and what I meant by that was Honolulu. And I had to quickly add the rejoinder, not the weather, but beauty, nature, these fingers of dark land going into this blue, blue ocean, the light, and the kind of more casual living, and yet a kind of sophistication. Because we find on the mid-coast that people want their excellent restaurants, they want uh, the Metropolitan Opera in New York to be telecast in high-definition television every Saturday when the Met is live. Down. So there's a coming together of nature, beauty, uh, sophistication, culture that reminded me of Hawaii. And when my wife came up here, she felt the same way. Uh, it wasn't a direct route from Honolulu to Rockland. <laughs> Uh, over the years, I was hired to uh, help build the new museum in Chicago, which was the uh, Museum of Contemporary Art. And then I was teaching in um, the Green Mountains in Vermont, outside of Burlington, for two and a half years. And then I worked in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, which is an old mill town on the Nashua River, doing the same thing, working with kids in public schools, putting on public programs, and in the places that I've lived, I've always taught in the evenings as an adjunct professor. So um, in Fitchburg, I started teaching at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in their arts and education program, and I taught there for 10 years, and then I also taught at the Extension School at Harvard for eight years. Those two tenures overlapped. So um, I've had the good fortune of hands-on practice of what we've been talking about during the day and then going and teaching it to really bright students in the evening. And when we moved up to Maine, I continued my association with, with both schools at, at Harvard. So um, after Massachusetts, uh, for the last six years, we've been in Rockland. 
I probably don't have to ask this question because I think anybody who's listening knows the answer, but what drives you? I mean, it seems like you've, there's some drive, some internal drive that you probably have had since you were quite young um, that keeps you feeling so passionate about art and education and bringing art to other people. Mm-hmm. I think it's awe, <clears throat> the awe that I felt when I looked at, into the mouth of that Tyrannosaurus Rex, and then the awe that I felt in all of the art that I've looked at in museums in Europe and Japan and around the world in America. It's awesome to see human hands creating these magnificent objects that brighten our lives. And I'm, you know, I dabble a little bit, but I don't consider myself an artist. But I can understand by my dabbling how difficult it is to come up with beauty new ideas. And when I say beauty, I don't mean all paintings have to be lovely seascapes in Maine. Some of the greatest art is about warfare and, and terrible things. But they've moved us, like Picasso did this painting um, right before World War II called Guernica about saturation bombing in Spain that Franco was part of. And it moved people. It moved people. So it's hard to call that beautiful. And it, it it's not um, colorful, it's monochromatic, but it moved people. So I think I've just been impressed with the working of human hands, creating objects all around the world that have moved us. And I want young people especially, though I do a lot with adults, but young people to discover their creativity in themselves. Because for me, we can talk about wind power in Maine and solar power tide power and all kinds of power but the power that I think we're letting slip through our fingers is the power of the creative mind of our young people you know and we're up against huge odds that no ever no other generation ever had to go up against with technology being so pervasive we can do creative things with technology but there has to be a balance and so I think using your hands to make art for young kids is something we need to encourage everywhere we can. And when it comes to school, what I'm talking about, it comes under a broader title, which we call project-based learning. Get kids out of the classroom, out of their seat, into the world, and create your lessons around things that are meaningful to their existence. And you'll be amazed at what they come up with. And they're going to learn all the basics, too if it's taught properly, if the pedagogy is correct. But they're going to enjoy school. They're going to love school. And art is one way we know that certain kids who wouldn't be in school, they would have dropped out, have stayed in school. They wanted to be in the school play. They wanted to be in the chorus. They're working on a mural. All of those things are communal. There's talk going on, there's communication, they feel included. And so when they're in school more, they're taking more math, more science. So I just urge all Mainers and all Americans to find ways to bring art into a parallel position with the other disciplines. And art is a discipline, and it's an academic discipline. There's an intellectual part to it, too. It shouldn't be a frill, it shouldn't be a special, it shouldn't be an extra. It needs to be central. And ironically, we're missing the boat by thinking just math, reading, 
and standardized tests are the ways to go. Do we really want our children to be proficient in only those things? I mean, what about music in their life? And what about beauty in the form of art? I think we want our kids to be more well-rounded than that, but we're kind of on the slippery slope because things that can be measured get measured. Things that are hard to measure, like beauty and art, often don't get measured. And I'm not saying that we should measure them in an academic way, but we have to honor them because we know that they help build community and they do things for kids that are more general instead of improving two points on a math score. We know that it, it causes empathy. When, when you look at somebody on the stage who's performing a schoolmate and you know that you're next to go up there, you're going to have some empathy. And if we have empathy, that could lead to understanding. And if we have understanding, that could lead to embracing. And if we have embracing, that could lead to um, love, in a way. I mean, this is what we're talking about. So the arts, I mean, that sounds a little hippy-dippy, but I'm saying that arts are about soul-making and about community-making. And art brings people together. And if we need to talk about academics, we know that when arts are deeply embedded in public schools in America, attendance goes up. Just attendance. I'm not saying the quality of instruction, but just attendance. So that means students are taking more math, science, etc. And the other thing we know is that when arts are deeply embedded, not fringe, but deeply embedded, students' vocabulary increases. Why? Because the arts are about a discussion, a critique, if you work with theater people, all they're doing is talking about the performance, what went wrong, what went right, how to improve it, how are they doing. Same with music critique and certainly with art critique. So the vocabulary increases. And there are all these other what I call general outcomes that are definitely present when the arts are stable and in place and not being cut this year and added back a little bit at a time over the next 10 years. And this kind of process is cyclical. It's happened before. The arts were cut. I remember in California in the 70s, art teachers were cut. Then they were brought back because is that what school's going to be? Nothing but, you know, drill? No. It needs to have this other humanistic, artistic part. One of the most, um, I don't know, compelling artistic moments of my life was actually at the Farnsworth and the photographer was Paul Caponegro. Yes. And this was maybe two years ago. And as a doctor, you might imagine, I haven't had much in terms of formal art education, but it didn't really matter. I stood in front of his photographs and I and I felt them. And I and I think that this is the type of thing that we can use to communicate with our children. So do you bring children through and try to help them with that as well, help them with the appreciation? Uh, we have thousands of students who go through the Farnsworth every year just for what you're talking about. And, you know, I feel it's not so much help them. Kids are open. It's like, let's not close them down. So they will stand before Paul Copernigro's work, and they'll be moved, and they bring their own baggage. It won't be the same experience as, that you've had and, and you know, bring all of that that you've had in your life, but they've had their life too. So 
on our guided tours, we have these wonderful guides called docents, and they're trained in what we call the Socratic approach. So asking leading general open questions of these students. And it begins with simply noticing. What do you see? Uh, how do you see it? <clears throat> and if they say something in response, why do you say that? So it's very reflective, and it's not telling them just the art history of the Paul Capra Negro photograph, which comes out in the discussion, but it begins with where these kids are. Most of Paul's photographs are of nature, of beauty. These kids live in Maine. They see it all the time. They bring it themselves. So, I, you know, our, our docents are schooled in not talking right away, letting kids wander through the galleries a little bit, bringing them back and opening it up to a discussion. It's amazing what they say. I mean, they see the most cogent and important parts typically because they experience it. And, and so we have a lot of groups going through and, and we were able to receive money from Bank of America. So every group that goes through, every single one, we cover the bus fees and fares. And there's no charge for the students to come in. There's no charge for the docent program. So in our own small way, we're trying to reach as many students with the first program that I mentioned, Stories of the Land and Its People, and with bringing kids in to see our, our wonderful collection. We also have a, a teen program, an after-school teen program, where kids make films about their life on the mid-coast. Uh, the first one they did uh, using only an iPhone, the whole movie. It was tremendous, and we uh, screened it in the Strand Theater, which is a wonderful old theater up in Rockland. 350 people came out to see this movie. That was four years ago. Since then, they've made five movies. One was on homeless teens on the mid-coast. So we had teens making a film about other teens who are homeless on the mid-coast, but even though they're homeless, they love art. And not through the Farnsworth. They discovered art by journaling, their music, dancing. And so this whole film, it's called Artworks, was about how teens saw other teens using art to get through really difficult times. And the last film they just completed was all about bullying, <clears throat> but not the kind of bullying that I might remember when I went to school. Part, part of it was about that, but cyberbullying and how terrible and devastating that is for our young people. So um, we have amazing kids all over, and all they need are, as I said before, some resources, adult supervision, and the permission to kind of plumb their creativity. It's there. And I've seen it when I worked in Chicago with a different population, an urban poor population on the south side of Chicago. There were students there who had never picked up a crayon and a piece of paper, and they were in middle school. <clears throat> and the school that the schools that I worked with were on um, south, uh, the south side of Chicago, on South State Street. Some of these kids had never seen Lake Michigan. It was like four blocks away because it was too dangerous to go out there. I'm just saying that we need to put kids in safe places where they can discover their creativity, because they definitely have it. And by the way, their solutions to our problems are going to be really based on their creativity.
So our problems are so intractable with poverty, with war, with pollution, the ecology. You and I aren't going to solve those problems. But a new generation will need to tackle them. And if they can have a creative way of looking at things, <clears throat> an interdisciplinary way, that will be tremendous. And they have a shot at it. Roger, there's a lot going on at the Farnsworth. Mm -hmm. I know that people will be interested in finding out more. So what's the best way for people to learn about the education programs and just the museum in general? Just going to our website uh, as a start or just calling up the museum. Uh, there's a wonderful newspaper up there called the Free Press. It comes out every Thursday, and we have you know either ads or articles about what we're doing. Or just hopping in the car and driving on up. We're open seven days a week until uh, October. So, uh, you know, we're, we're available. And on first Fridays, we're free in the evenings. So there, there is a lot going on. And uh, there's a lot going on in Portland. It's a great state. I mean, kind of getting back to one of your questions, um, the similarities between Honolulu, where there's a lot of art and a lot of activity going on, are uh, palpable. But Honolulu is a city of 800,000 people. I mean, Portland, small, and Rockland, you know, is tiny. But it doesn't mean that we don't have the same kind of energy and creativity going on. Well, I feel very um, fortunate that you took the time to come down here and talk with us about art and education and the work that's being done at the Farnsworth Art Museum up in Rockland. We've been speaking with Roger Dell, who is the Director of Education at the Farnsworth Art Museum. And um, I encourage everybody who's listening to go and spend some time in your wonderful place. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 107, Artists and Education. Our guests have included Suzette McAvoy and Roger Dell. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Artists and Education show. Thank you for enabling me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. 
Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.